So a couple of days ago, in the teacher room, we were talking, and the thought came up that perhaps <clears throat> we should all give the same talk over and over again. <laughs> Our own version, you know, where you'd hear Sharda's version, and my version, and John's version, and after a while you'd have quite a, a number of versions. You could kind of soak it in, and it reminded me that Oh, two or three years ago, the last time Ajahn Sumedho taught here, I sat that retreat. And partway through the retreat, I was having a grumpy day. And I thought, he's giving the same talk over and over again, <laughs> twice a day. And I was a little grumpy about it, but I was on the retreat. And, and after the retreat, I had this most amazing experience of realizing it was true in a way. There were a lot of things he repeated. And I really got them. So you may notice that there's some overlapping in the talks. I'm thinking of it as the cycle of dependent talks, actually. <laughs> John leads to Heather, leads to mine, leads to Donald's, you know, kind of like that. So let it all soak in like this wonderful rain we've been having, and, and we'll just see what grows out of it. So I want to start, both start and end with the same poem. This is a poem from William Stafford, and it's called The Way It Is. He says, there's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread but it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So we've talked quite a bit in recent days about how it all begins with suffering. There's this place where we all know suffering, we all know confusion, we all know lostness. We all know that place where we look around and we go, what is going on here? What is this event that calls itself a human life, and why does it so often hurt and feel really uncomfortable and, and out of round and stressful, and why is it even sometimes agonizing? You know, and we don't, we don't understand a lot what is going on. So the Buddha before he was the Buddha, when he was a young man, just Gotama, he lived, it said, in a very protected environment. And his parents saw to it that he didn't have very much exposure to illness or old age or death, as little exposure to anything difficult as could be imagined. But, you know, he was a young man, and even that amount of trying to keep him protected wasn't enough. And like all young people, he was curious, you know, what 
was outside, you know, what was outside, but all of this protection, it's still, isn't it interesting, all of that protection, and it still didn't feel quite like enough, it was a little out of round, out of sync, and so he got out, of course, he managed to persuade the charioteer to take him to town, sort of like sneaking out of his college dormitory, and when he got out, that's when he had that experience of encountering someone who was old and someone who was very sick and then someone who was dead and a monk. And this whole experience is really what set him on his path. And so later, after he had his awakening experience, one of the things that he saw clearly was what John talked about the other night. Um, what's now called the chain of dependent origination. And he really saw very, very deeply into how we get caught in dissatisfaction and in suffering and in stress. And he saw that we go around and around, you know, endlessly caught in the same mistakes and the same sufferings, the same bad um, relationship, the same awful job, the same forms of addictive behaviors. We all know those places. We've all done it. And as Heather likened it last night to going around on the wheel in the rat cage, you know, and there's just no freedom when all you're doing is going around on the wheel. So in that description, he said, you know, when you come to a particular moment in time, we don't see clearly. Our mind is colored by various past experiences which have created a certain kind of consciousness, a filter, if you will. Sometimes it's useful, you know, it's handy to know that what's coming toward you is a truck and you'd better get out of the way, but often it's not. And so often we find that we are perceiving our experience through the lens of an old story. And, so, and we're seeing, we're inhabiting that story, and we're deeply conditioned by that story. And so then, in that moment, with that lens in place, we have a perception of something or someone, contact happens, and, um, and that contact is either pleasant, or it's unpleasant, or it's neutral. All of our experience comes in one of those three flavors. And we miss it. We don't catch it. And you can think back today, you know, how many times did you really notice, oh, this is really pleasant, or it's unpleasant, or neutral. And if you don't catch it, what often happens is we react, and we go, I love it, I want it more. You know, and your mind zips off, planning your next three-month retreat, or how to be a monk or a nun in Thailand, or whatever it is that you're doing, or you hate it. This is awful, and you want someone to take it away, or you go, it's mine, or whatever it is that we do in that moment of reaction. When it's neutral, sometimes we just get spacey and we don't notice. And so then, craving and clinging arise, because we want it or we don't want it, and then we are launched into a whole nother iteration of that cycle. It goes around again, and that's the place where we begin to create the same 
relationship, the same job, the same situation, again and again and again. Around and around we go, and we get really, really stuck. I imagine we could have a lot of fun some night in a different kind of a retreat. We could each tell our story, you know, of how we'd been really stuck. It might get discouraging after a while. But we've all done it so many times. It's very, very familiar. However, it's really wonderful that Buddha really saw, you know, the whole breadth of the human experience, and he began to realize that there is also a cycle of conditioned stages which leads to liberation, which leads to transformation. And, and we began to talk about that last night. You know, and so he, the, the, human, the human situation is repeated suffering and also then the possibility of awakening. So in the second cycle, he says that suffering or stress creates the conditions for faith to arise. And when faith arises, that creates the conditions for delight, which creates the condition and supports joy. And that creates the condition and supports tranquility. And that creates happiness, creates the conditions for happiness to arise which creates the conditions for concentration to arise. And then that creates the condition that supports the ability to see things as they they really are, which creates the uh, conditions for disenchantment, sort of coming out of the spell that we've been in all this time, which creates the condition for dispassion, for seeing things kind of clearly and with a kind of coolness, which creates the conditions for liberation or the knowledge of the ending of suffering. It's wonderful. And as Heather said, that one doesn't just go around and around and around. That one goes around, but it goes in a spiral. And you can take the spiral up if you like the notion of going up, or you can take the spiral down if you like the notion of going deeper and deeper and deeper into your own experience. But it takes you farther every time you go around. And it can be used in a very precise way to describe meditative experience, what exactly is happening here on the cushion. And so you may, since we're in a long retreat, you may find it very helpful that way as we talk about these different stages. And it also has a kind of psychological sophistication that allows us to use it as a guide in our more ordinary experiences as well. And each stage arises when the previous stage, when our training in the previous stage comes to a certain point that creates the condition for the next stage to arise. You don't, you can't plan that, you know, okay, today I'm, you know, today I'm, let's see, I'm in um, tranquility today, and and at a certain point at 4.20 in the afternoon, happiness is going to arise. It just doesn't work like that. It'd be nice if it did, but it doesn't, you know, you just have to kind of keep working with the creating of tranquility and doing the things that one does until happiness just arises on its own. 
So, it all begins with suffering. That same suffering, the same suffering begins the cycle. It's the same suffering that is the result of the cycle of dependent origination. And of course, if it's the suffering that keeps us going around and around in that, on that wheel, it's very unconscious, isn't it? Where we don't quite get it and we thrash around and we're trying to get rid of it. And usually we're trying to get rid of it by getting what we want or not getting what we don't want. And we certainly don't want the suffering. Or there's another way to work with suffering, which is where we begin to wake up. And Heather told that wonderful story last night about going into the bookstore and finding the Tassajara bread book, you know. And I thought, as I was listening to her, I thought, how many people have waked up because they ran across the Tassajara bread book and thought they were just getting a cookbook? What, what they were really getting was an introduction into Buddhist practice. And I myself, when I had the Tassajara bread book, was making a lot of forays into the hippie world and I was in a very unhappy and ultimately unsuccessful marriage and I had two small children and I had no idea who I was, none whatsoever. So besides the Tassajara bread book, what I found was the world of Jungian therapy and analysis and dream work, which really led me into the practice of a more examined life. So something, and again for each of you, you all have your own stories, something brings us to the notion that we have to turn and confront the pain, the stress, we have to confront the cyclic way in which life is not working. You know, what can I do, not how can they be different. So those of us who have had some experience with 12-step work know that, you know, in AA, for example, they talk about hitting bottom. There's a place where there's nothing else to do except turn and look at the suffering. And I thought when I was pondering this about my friend Noah Levine, whom some of you know and who teaches in this Vipassana world, and, and his turning point came one day when he had been arrested and he was in juvenile hall. And while he was there, he remembered the instructions that his father, who's also a teacher, had given him for breathing practice. And he thought, well, you know, not much else to do. And he began to do it and it began to turn his life around. And Sharda the other night said, well, why would you risk? You know, why would you take the risk of doing this practice or coming on a two-month retreat or, or entering the Dharma. And sometimes I think the response is, why not? What else is there to do? So often we're like Nasruddin, right? You remember that wonderful story about Nasruddin who had lost the key and he dropped it somewhere, you know, and in the yard. And, um, and so he was hunting around and he couldn't find, he was hunting and hunting and someone came along and he said, well, why, wh where did you lose the key? And he said, oh, I lost it over there in the bushes. And the person said, well, why are you looking here where in the light? You know, well, we always do that, don't we? We look in the light because we don't want to go into the dark, but that's not where the key is. We know it's over there in the bushes. And when we begin to look in the dark, 
That's a profound turning. That's a really, really important place in our practice where we are beginning to be willing to come to terms with our pain and with our suffering. And, and it's a very deeply sacred place. It's a very deeply sacred place. When I started my studies with those Jungians, one of the first teachings that I heard came from one of the Greek healing rituals, healing um, the sex of the healing mysteries. And, um, and it goes like this. It says, God sends the wound. God is the wound. God is wounded. And God heals the wound. So it's a different tradition, you know. It's, we're using the God word for a minute. But God sends the wound. God is the wound. God is wounded, and God heals the wound, which speaks very, very deeply of how utterly sacred it is to look at those places of darkness and suffering. So the Buddha, you know, in that early experience was plunged. I mean, can you imagine never having seen anything difficult? And you see old age and sickness and death, boom, you know, right there, one visit. I mean, it must have been utterly overwhelming. And then he saw this monk who was walking along, seeing the same things in the same environment, but somehow peaceful and equanimous and contained. And he got really interested, you know, what did that monk have? Who was that, you know? And so tonight we're going to talk some about what happens after the suffering. What's the next step in this cycle? What is it when we, that begins to arise when we turn and look at our suffering in a really deep and careful way? And so this is the step of sadha, or faith, as it's sometimes translated, or you could call it trust, or conviction. And conviction is actually a pretty good translation because it has a sense of action to it. So some things to say about faith, because faith is one of those words, some of, I've had students who say it's one of those F words, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure about faith. So. Faith in Buddhism is not based on belief. It's not a commodity that you have or you don't have. But in the end, what faith or conviction or trust is in this practice is the ability to trust your own deepest experience. The ability to trust your own deepest experience. So many of us, maybe even most of us, as we grew up, we didn't learn to trust ourselves and our deep experiences. Sometimes, in my family, we were taught that those things didn't count. They were of no interest 
to a very intellectual, agnostic, even atheistic kind of family who were not particularly inward-oriented at all. Or maybe you came from another extreme where certain beliefs were required and expected. And some of us went, as we've had uh, different experiences, have been not treated with respect, and our own ideas and beliefs have been discounted as we've gone along. And sometimes we've been judged and criticized so much that we just don't trust our own experience. And you know, even the Buddha, there he was in that night of his enlightenment experience, and he was sitting under the Bodhi tree, and, and the legend has it that up came Mara, you know, the one who's always asking difficult questions and kind of challenging people not to wake up. And Mara said, who are you to think about being enlightened? Who are you? You know, and the Buddha, do you remember, reached out and touched the ground and really called the earth to witness his right to be free, to his right to trust deeply his own wisdom and insight. The word sada in Pali actually means to place the heart upon. So what is it that this process is? You know, in your own heart, something moved at some point to bring you into practice, and in particular to this retreat. And so maybe, you know, way back when, when you got started, it was a trusted friend who told you, you know, you ought to try, ought to try meditation, or maybe it was a book, you know, you picked up one of Sylvia's books, or Jack's, or somebody else's, or maybe somebody brought you and said, here, come, you know, come to this sitting group, come listen to this teacher. And so someone, it's like someone reached out a hand and said, here, let me help you, you know, it's really like that. And your heart moved. You were suffering, right? Remember, we started in suffering. And so we, our heart, we're something we're wanting, and our heart says, oh, okay, yeah, I'll try it, you know. And there's some conviction that maybe there would be something for you in this practice, in this teaching. And so you place your heart out on this practice. This is what we call bright faith. You know, it's that place where we, even it feels a little sometimes like falling in love with a teacher or a teaching, you know, where we're really inspired. We're so inspired. And we don't really know, you don't know much at that point, you know, you think back, you didn't know much, I didn't know much, you know, but, but we really trust another being's knowing. And so, you know, there was something when the Buddha saw that monk that he trusted, and he went right home, hustled right home, shaved his head, packed up a few things, and left, left his family, his home, and began his years of working with people who were the very revered teachers of that time, doing various meditative and ascetic practices. So a few other examples of bright faith, just hoping that some of them will soak in. This is one of my current favorites. In a completely other world, in 1995, the astronomers of the Hubble 
Space Telescope, took that amazing instrument up there in the sky, and they trained it on a little tiny piece of sky in Ursa Major, which is near where the Big Dipper is, a little piece of sky that if you look at it with just a normal telescope and certainly with your own eyes, it's empty. There's nothing there. It's devoid of any stars that are in this galaxy. And they wanted to know what will happen if we look and look and look. And so their training inspired them to pick up this particular thread and to follow it. They trusted, they had faith that if they did this, maybe they would find something. So that's one. In my case, I went one year to the Transpersonal Psych Conference at Asilomar. I wasn't doing much of any practice. I'd been in the Christian world before that, kind of, sort of, for a few years. Not very active. And I met Jack Cornfield, who was leading a one-day workshop, and I heard Roger Walsh. And some of you know Roger. He's a wonderful yogi. And he stood up, yogi, psychiatrist, teacher. He's amazing. And he stood up in front of a thousand people. And in his presentation, he began to talk about all of the suffering in the world. And as he talked about the suffering in the world, he began to weep. And he just wept as he talked. And I was so inspired. I thought, I don't know what it is that he has, but I want it. I want to find out more about a practice that would allow me to stand in front of a thousand people and weep over the suffering of the world. The Buddha said in his teaching about faith, he said, bright faith is a bit like you're in the forest and you're looking for an elephant. And you find a footprint of an elephant. And you get really excited because, of course, in his day, elephants were really helpful. And maybe this would be a really big elephant and it could really help with the maintenance around your village. You know, so it'd be really wonderful to have this big bull elephant. So all of these images are images of how is it that we're inspired to go ahead. And then we begin to move. And in another image of the bright faith stage, the Buddha says that, that when, we're, when we're doing that, it's like there are cows crossing a stream. And the older, wise, cagey cows who know how to get across the stream, they go first. And then by their lowing, you know, the babies, the calves, f kind of follow along afterwards. And so we have just enough trust to kind of follow the lowing of our teachers. You know, we follow the thread. And one yogi today talked about how there's one moment of trust, and then there's another, and there's another. And you kind of braille your way along, you know, one moment uh, at a time. So I listened to the lowing of Jack Cornfield and Roger Walsh. They didn't know that they were lowing, but they were. And each of you has followed something, just enough trust to bring you to today, which is the eighth full day of the March retreat, and I think about the 36th day of the two-month retreat. You know, one moment at a time you followed. 
But that's not enough, is it? Bright faith isn't enough. So the next category in the faith process is what's called verified faith. And so this is really where the hard work begins because this is where you kind of check it out for yourself. You know, is this really true what I've started to do? And so here you are, you know, you're definitely in the intensive lab course. You know, you got to check it out. Is it true? All of the teachings, all of the teachings that we offer here, all of the teachings of the Buddha are meant to support the investigation of your own heart and mind. That's why we offer them, so that you can take them and test them and see, does it work? Does it work? So the young Gotama, he went to these various teachers and he followed their instructions and he learned lots of very advanced meditative practices and he did major ascetic practices and he tried them all. You know, will these work? Will these bring the awakening that I want? And they didn't, actually. They were interesting. He learned a lot. I'm sure he was an amazing training for his mind. But they didn't bring him the awakening that he sought, you know? And so with the Hubble, you know, there it is. The scope was up there, checking, checking. For 10 days, they took that scope and 10 days doesn't sound like much in the context of 36, does it? So you're way ahead of the Hubble, you know, but it's trained on that piece of empty sky. What's up there? And the astronomers weren't interested in any more theory. They wanted to know, you know, what could we see? And like you, my own work was to keep checking out the teachings, try them out, to attend retreats, to do the practice, do it in retreats, do it every day, you know, do it in my life <clears throat> to study, and find out for myself what works. And in the Buddha's story, you know, the, hunt, the hunter begins to work through the forest, the story about the elephants. And because after all, it's just a footprint, right? And it, said, it says in the text, maybe it's a dwarf elephant with big feet. You know? <laughs> Imagine, that's sort of a funny image. Or, or maybe if there's scrapings high up, so you think, oh, maybe it is a big elephant, but it might be a tall, skinny elephant with big feet. So you keep checking, checking, you know, what, and looking, trying to find out for yourself what is this, the source of this footprint. All of these teachings are meant to be investigated, to find out what is true in your own heart and mind. And in, in one wonderful text, the Buddha advises us, don't trust anyone, not even me, he said. Imagine, don't trust the Buddha. Check it out for yourself. Test it. And, and he said, try it like they used to test coins to see if they were gold. So a gold coin is soft, and if you bite it, your teeth will leave marks. And if it's not gold, no marks. So that's how you find out for yourself, is it gold? And, and there's, 
it's quoted in the monastic ch chant every day, Ehi Pasiko. It means come and see for yourself. Ehi Pasiko, come and see for yourself. Many, many times I've gone to see, often in recent years I've gone to see Ajahn Amaro to just talk about my practice every now and then. And every now and then, you know, I'll try something out. I read about some meditation technique or some way of, of working and and it's a little maybe off the beaten path and so you know I, I get to I get to my interview just like you come and I I bring it out you know I'm, I'm doing this thing you know what do you think and I'm always a little you know what's he gonna say and almost invariably what he has said over the years is does it work does it work and if I say yeah it works great he says great do it and if I say, yeah, it's not working so well, he sort of says, well, why? You know, don't do it if it's not working. Sometimes I have to confess that I get a little annoyed that thus far as I check things out, the Buddha is usually right. You know, I do suffer when I get attached. Even my husband likes to point that out to me once in a while. You know, you're getting attached. You're going to suffer. It's true. I do. When I let go, it all gets easier, you know. Wise speech really works if I'm careful with my speech. Following the meditation instructions, the most basic ones, often really works, you know. And I have to find that all out for myself. I have to see, is it true? It's important to say that there can be unskillful doubt. You know, there's the kind of doubt that gets into ultimately unanswerable questions. Where does it all come from? What is the karma that brings me to this particular moment? Is there a God? You know, that kind of question, the kinds of things that can't actually be experienced are not so interesting in this practice and not so helpful. But the de in the development of conviction and trust, curiosity and testing and wondering does it work? That's just fine, you know. That's fine. We need to do that. It's also really important to say that faith, confidence, trust, these are courageous. It takes courage to check out your faith. It's not an easy thing what you're doing here. It's, you know this. I don't have to tell you, but maybe it will help to hear it. You know, it's a very very difficult thing that you're doing to be on retreat for a long period of time like this. It's a wonderful thing. It's very, very hard. And it does take courage. Mindfulness practice is a wisdom practice and a purification practice. So what that means is you come here and it gets difficult, right? Your stuff comes up. The things you haven't been looking at or you haven't seen you came to be peaceful and calm and quiet, or you came to get really concentrated. And sometimes what we find is that we're sitting on this mountain of what looks like garbage, you know, your anger and your sadness and your fear or your body that's not doing as well as it used to, you know. I hear a lot now in interviews, you know, I used to be able to do this when I sat at a retreat, but now I can't sit like that or, or 
kneel like that or walk like that anymore, you know. And so whatever's there that's difficult often shows itself when we're here in practice. It takes heart and it takes courage. And faith is really the capacity of heart that allows us to continue to stay once we're here, you know, to sit with the difficulties to arise, to make it to the end of the sitting. So I thought I would tell you one of my favorite retreat stories. I got a note once on a retreat, and it said, if well into the sitting, a student leaps up in the back of the hall and says, yells out, ring the damn bell. Would it it be an act of compassion to ring the bell? It's a wonderful question. A wonderful question. I thought about it. And I am probably sorry, maybe sorry, to say the answer was no. It would not be an act of compassion to ring the bell. Because really the compassionate thing is allowing you to hang in there with your trust that you will make it to the end of the sitting if you just follow the instructions and sit there and wait. The bell does always ring. That's pretty wonderful that way. Sometimes our practice takes us to the very edge of our capacity. How can I bear this? How can I bear this? And we do, don't we? One more breath, and then one after that, and then one after that. And in trusting that one more breath, in the conviction that we can make it, that that this, you know, we're testing it out, we are able to bear it. And so what begins to arise then is what's called abiding faith. And so that's the place where we really have learned to trust, that we know deeply in the marrow of our bones that it works. You know, keep coming back. It works. And It's true in lots of areas of life, and it's true here, and we know that it works. So the Buddha, when he left the world of those other teachers and the ascetic practices, he nearly died, as you know the story. So he took some time, and he nourished his body, and he got his health back. And when he was ready, he sat himself down under the Bodhi tree and he followed what he knew to be true. If you remember the story, he'd had a memory of watching his father doing the ritual spring plowing, probably on days somewhat like this, you know, where it's really green and really fresh. And he remembered a kind of presence and focused mind and concentration, and, and he picked up that thread because he knew that that was true, and he followed it. And with the Hubble folks, you know, after 10 days of viewing, 
the images began to come in. And this is, I brought this to read to you. As the images have come up on our screens, we have not been able to keep from wondering if we might somehow be seeing our own origins in all of this. The past 10 days have been an unbelievable experience. Can you imagine, you know, beginning to see images of galaxies that are billions and billions and billions of years old, looking way, way back in time. It just boggles the mind, you know, how excited they must have been in those labs. And in my own experience, I suppose one answer to the abiding faith is, here I am sitting here in front of you giving this talk, right? So there's a way in which for me, and I think for all of us who are teaching this retreat and all of us who teach here at any time, you know, the practice as our trust deepens daily in this path because, of course, not only now do we have our experience, but we also hear yours as well. And so as we go deeper, we really want to share it. It's real and it's useful and we know that it works and we know that it changes lives, you know. And if you're in the forest looking for the elephant, finally you come through the bushes and there is the huge, big leader elephant, a big bull elephant. His feet fit the footprints. He's exactly what you were hoping he was and you know that this is what you were looking for. You know it for yourself. It's abiding faith. And so this is the understanding that allows us to walk our talk, that allows us to live in accordance with what we know to be true. And it allows us to do this sometimes in the face of huge challenges, you know. And it's, a, it's the place, Paul Tillich described it, he said, it's where we are aligned with our ultimate concern. It's a wonderful phrase. We're aligned with our ultimate concern. We really are in it. And we begin to know that this act of attention to the present moment is actually an enlightened act. It is an act of enlightenment to sit, to give your attention, and that this is the place of safety. This is the place of refuge, this place of attention to the present moment. It's important to say about faith. Faith is one of the five spiritual faculties. It's another whole list. And in that list of effort, faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, it's another one that can be done sequentially. But the thing I wanted to point to tonight is it's also a place where each of those factors balances the others. And so faith balances wisdom, and just so you'll know, effort balances concentration, and then mindfulness sort of is the overseer. So it's important as we consider faith to remember that, that faith, you know, that place of inspiration, sometimes it's the place that brings passion and nourishment to our practice. Sometimes for some of us, um, the, the place of faith and trust is also the place that gives rise to devotional practice, you know, bowing or chanting or different kinds of devotional practices that some of you might do. 
And so there's a, a way in which this trust, this conviction, really carries us for our, forward, and it's a place of some juice in our practice. You know, it's very juicy. But the downside to faith is that it can be very blind, right? And if you wonder about that, you could remember, perhaps back in your own life, when you fell in love with the wrong person. I imagine there's no one in this room who's never done that. You know, we've all fallen in love with the wrong person. We utterly believed that they were fabulous, whoever they were. And we were utterly wrong. You know, they weren't so fabulous. They weren't the right person for us. And there's other, you know, there's examples of places like Jonestown and Waco, where you see faith that's really gone awry and led people into some very difficult places. So it needs the balancing of wisdom. It needs the balancing of discernment, that which sees what is, you know, that which knows when to put the brakes on or when to ask the question or when to challenge, that which can penetrate. But wisdom by itself can be pretty dry, you know. So wisdom needs that juiciness of faith. So you can really allow your conviction and your faith and your trust to support your wisdom and insight, and you allow your wisdom and insight to guide your faith. The path to liberation is not easy. It's going upstream, like the Buddha said. We need lots and lots and lots of support. And when we are willing to confront our own suffering, to allow ourselves to follow the thread, whatever thread that arises of inspiration, when we allow the faith of our, in our teachers or teachings to begin to develop, when we check it out for ourselves, when we test it and verify it and, and really work it so that we know that it's true. This, this act takes us a long ways towards our goal. So my hope for each of you is that you will be supported in your trust and conviction and faith during these days of the retreat. So let me read to you William Stafford again. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So let's just sit and breathe together for a moment.
please don't let go of the thread. And thank you very much for listening.